Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio today with Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Attorney Matthew Roberts. Matthew, good to be with you. Good to see you. Over the last 20 months, we have learned a lot during this podcast um, and talking about COVID. And recently, we've learned more about how it's impacting younger people. Right. A lot of questions about how vaccinations work with young folks uh, and how what therapeutic treatments work best with, with folks. But there are also questions about if children have had COVID or teenagers have had COVID, what are the long-term implications? Right. So, we still don't have a lot of the answers to those questions. There is still a lot to learn, but today I'm excited about our guest. On the yes. Pulse, we'll be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Mack. She is Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at MUSC and a Professor of Pediatrics. She is going to discuss COVID-19 pandemic issues and its impact on children. So stay with us on Taking the Pulse. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is a highly recognized pediatrician, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. She serves as Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at MUSC and has worked in hospitals across South Carolina for more than 15 years. Dr. Mack holds a Master's of Science degree in Biostatistics and Epidemiology and is a frequent speaker and author on pediatric medicine. Dr. Mack, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Would you start by explaining your role as Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at MUSC and also maybe the, explain to us the type, type of children that you may see? Sure. So uh, here at MUSC, we have a team of pediatric intensivists or pediatric critical care physicians that care for the children in our pediatric ICU. So as children sort of age above the NICU age or the neonatal ICU um, and have serious illness or injury, then they come to the pediatric ICU. And there are several uh, around the state. We have 28 beds here in our pediatric ICU, and we care for children with a variety of illnesses and injuries, uh, anything from trauma to cancer to pneumonia or COVID, uh, as in this example. Well, Dr. Mack, thanks again for joining us. Um, as a pediatric critical care physician, you've been in the eye of the storm, so to speak, with respect to treating kids with COVID, particularly kids that are really sick with COVID. Um, please describe your experience as a physician during this time and focus on what you were most disappointed or surprised about over the last 20 months as you treated these kids and what maybe inspired you the most as, as you treated these, these kids. Sure. Uh, it's certainly been a whirlwind. Um, and, you know, I think there are a couple of stories to tell that um, will probably be uh, sort of uh, high points and low points in my career um, eventually. You know, one thing that I think is fascinating, um, we always say kids are not little adults. And then during this pandemic, um, our adult hospitals were overwhelmed and we began caring for adults. Um, so uh, we really took overflow um, and including pregnant women, uh, adults with COVID, adults without COVID, and took a crash course um, along with our nurses and our respiratory therapists. And I really tried to sort of absorb some of the impact that our adult hospitals were feeling. And um, that was really uh, a learning point for, for many of us. Um, and yet at the same time, I think um, it really helped sort of thread the needle in terms of, you know, humanity is, there's a common theme um, amongst us. We all 
um, need to feel safe and um, and want to have our, our people around us. And so in terms of, you know, hot topics like visitation and that kind of thing, where in the children's hospital, we, you know, you can never imagine telling a parent they couldn't be with their right. child, right? So, right. Um, but we just kind of kept the same themes going for our adults as well. So yeah, sure, you know, you can be here um, with your loved one. And it, it really, I think it worked out. Um, and in terms of, uh, sort of um, su whether, you know, being surprised or disappointed or what have you, I think um, it certainly has been sad um, to see the polarization. Um, and really when it, when it comes to kids, you know, uh, the Maasai people, they, they ask, uh, and how are the children when they greet each other? And of course that's my lens is, is talking, um, you know, about child health uh, across our state and, I really and I think the children have have not fared the greatest um, through this. And you know what's bad for kids is you know isolation and not being able to develop you know socially be be safe, be healthy, all of that. Um, so that has has been um, tough to watch. And in terms of um, high points, again, I, I really loved um, being able to to see our teams come together to care for both children and and adults across the spectrum. That um, really was a it was something that was harrowing and, and nerve wracking for us, but it was really a point of pride, um, I think, in the end to be able uh, to serve and, and to help in that way on the front lines. I would have never thought about it, but it makes sense that you would take overflow. But my goodness, to go from pediatrics to, you know, oh, yeah. a lady who's going to have a baby to something else. That's a, um, definitely being agile. Uh, Dr. Mack, if you would tell me or tell both of us, how has the clinical treatment of children with COVID changed, I'm guessing it has over the last 20 months. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, you know, I remember our first patient was at the end of March of 2020. Um, and we used hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin and a number of other drugs that we wouldn't even think about using um, for COVID now. So things have really changed. Thankfully, um, a lot of the research that we have been involved in um, nationally uh, around a lot of this work has, has informed um, those changes. And so, you know, we know uh, a lot more now about what's safe and what's effective for the treatment of COVID in children. Um, and there's not a lot, by the way, <laughs> there are not a lot of options. Um, but I, I know that we'll know more, you know, in time uh, as, as this whole thing evolves. So it's really been cool to sort of be on the sharp end and see the science as it changes. It's still early to try to determine the long-term impacts of COVID, but as of today in, in December, 2021, what do we know about the potential long-term impacts of children who have already suffered or, and had COVID? Yeah, you know, um, we know more um, about the long-term impact on children who required hospitalization, either for COVID or uh, MISI, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. We know more about those children because um, many of them have been enrolled in studies. And so uh, we're able to really systematically follow them over time at specified uh, time points and that kind of thing. We don't know nearly as much about the children who maybe stayed home, felt a little puny, or maybe they didn't even know they were infected. But, um, you know, this uh, long haulers um, phenomenon that we've that we've heard of, you know, 
it is not surprising to us in pediatrics, we're used to dealing with viruses that affect multiple different parts of the bodies that there can be long-term implications that, um, you know, that happens with other viruses as well. But I do think um, it's important to learn more um, about the long-term impact. So for the children who required hospitalization, either for their acute COVID or their MIS-C, many of them have had um, long-term effects uh, on their heart, on their lungs, on their kidneys, um, and on and on. And what we don't know, are those um, going to resolve or are they uh, going to give these children trouble in time as they um, grow older? Uh, we really, we have a lot to learn, um, but I can tell you having seen a number of very sick children, especially in this most recent Delta surge, um, and then the subsequent MIS-C surge that followed that um, COVID surge, that uh, many of them are still struggling, uh, especially the ones that required hospitalization. Oh, I hope they fully recover. Would you explain and give a little bit more background on MIS-C that you have referenced here a couple of times? Sure. So, um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, and there's actually an adult version called Miss A, um, and there is a CD, a very strict CDC definition um, that we follow, and it's actually a um, reportable disease. In other words, we tell DHEC every time that we diagnose uh, a child with this. There's not like a specific test. Um, there's not symptoms that are just unique um, to miss, miss C, but um, I can tell you for them, you know, part of the definition is that they uh, have fever, that they have um, uh, laboratory findings of inflammation, and they often have multiple organs involved. And then they have to have really the, the clincher of the diagnosis that they have to have some um, piece of COVID. So whether they have ev lab evidence of recent uh, COVID infection, or they're, you know, have uh, lab evidence of infection now, or uh, they had a history of an exposure or something like that, which who hasn't ex been exposed in the last, you know, right. little bit, right. but um, that's really sort of part of the definition. And we actually here have a, a Miss C team that meets and discusses every um, child that it's the diagnosis is being considered. And um, we literally pull up the CDC definition every time, walk through it. And there may be days that go by where we say, you know, we're not ready to diagnose it yet because we still have some other tests that are pending that we want to make sure it's not those things. So it's a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. It's also, um, it's also uh, interesting in that it's sort of a cousin of many diseases that we um, knew well prior to the onset of COVID. So um, it's a little bit of a cousin of a disease called Kawasaki's that, um, that we uh, take care of not too infrequently in the hospital um, that also can have um, cardiac effects and um, cause high fever and have sort of a classic kind of group of symptoms. Um, but again, there are many things that can mimic these two. And so we have to, we, you know, we want to be thoughtful um, about that as well. Well, Dr. Mack, uh, vaccinations have unfortunately become a very controversial topic um, since COVID started in 2020. Can you talk a little bit about the, the importance of vaccinations in general, but then again, also specifically how parents should think about having their children uh, vaccinated to the extent they're eligible for vaccination for COVID-19? Yeah, uh, I agree with you. It's been a tough um, journey to watch because and to be part of. Um, because, of course, I'm a, a general pedi pediatrician first, and um, that 
this situation has uh, really actually dropped the rates of routine vaccinations. Um, And so, you know, things that, and we frankly in this state already struggled with that um, relative to other states. So um, we were not in a, in a perfect situation to begin with. And now with more polarization um, and negativity and, um, you know, nervousness about um, routine vaccinations uh, in addition to the COVID vaccine, I do worry that we will start to see, and we have seen pockets of resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases. And certainly MISI and COVID are vaccine-preventable diseases as well. Um, and, you know, at least until the beginning of November, our, um, our kids under 12 were not eligible for vaccination yet. And so a lot of the mitigation strategies that we've had to put in place really uh, you know, we're focused on the fact that that was very vulnerable population. And now it's our kids that, well, actually most of our five to to 11 year olds are still of course not vaccinated. And so, um, our children are extremely vulnerable, have to be considered a bit differently, uh, than our adult population because either they haven't been eligible for vaccination or they just, they aren't vaccinated. Um, so I'm glad you, you brought that up because, uh, this is really a point of concern, um, and particularly all the uh, exemptions that are that are filed, you know, for for children um, in schools and that type of thing, uh, it's it's very concerning that you know if we drop our herd immunity for various you know against various um, illnesses that that these things could circulate easily, and we've certainly seen some pockets of that um, already. And just to give you some numbers here, at the beginning of December, uh, we're sitting only at a third of our uh, children 12 to 19 vaccinated fully against COVID. So this has been available for some time now, and um, and we've been you know vaccinating in schools and in neighborhoods and that kind of thing. And yet, two thirds of our children, almost exactly, uh, are still unvaccinated. And here again. A month after uh, we've rolled it out for five to 11 years of age, um, seven, only 7% of our children uh, have received one vaccine and only 0.7% have received two vaccines in the five to 11 age group. So um, we've got a long way to go um, to really uh, get um, some semblance of herd immunity in our schools um, and in other settings where children um, live and play. What what are you hearing from patients, parents, or parents about the vaccines when the issues, particularly COVID, when the issues brought to them? We know they have general concerns, but where what is the basis for these concerns, and where are these concerns coming from? Sure, you know I um, I spend a lot of hours uh, talking with folks who are concerned, and and I start by saying you know you should be concerned about anything that goes into your child's body, and so I appreciate you know the fact that you want to be thoughtful about this and that sort of thing, and. Um, you know, people raise a different, um, different types of issues. Some just say, I'm, you know, uh, I've, I, I think that it causes COVID, um, which of course actually is not scientifically possible with um, the vaccines that are available in this country right now. Um, although, and, you know, I tell people, I hear what you're saying um, with some vaccines, like live vaccines, um, for example, you know, varicella or the flu mist, the shot in, or excuse me, the spray in the nose, um, those are live and theoretically you could actually get the disease, um, especially for, if you were immunocompromised. And so it's sort of like share your, you know, what you've heard is, 
um, true in some situations, but not in this situation. And so I hear where it's coming from, but it's, you know, it's not the case uh, in this case. Um, other folks will raise concerns about fertility and puberty. Uh, and we, you know, have the conversation about, um, it's actually recommended by, um, for pregnant women, and it's recommended for women who are trying to get pregnant. And in fact, um, the vaccine actually uh, protects against miscarriage and um, that sort of thing. And it doesn't alter the course of puberty. We actually have enough data to, to be able to know this at this point. Um, so, you know, those are some additional concerns that get raised. Others say, you know, I, I think it's gonna, um, you're going to actually, you know, put, uh, plant something in my body. Um, and so, you know, we can certainly uh, talk through that. Um, and some just say, you know, I just, I feel like there's not enough data out there. It's too new. It was developed too quickly. And we're able to talk about the fact that, you know, mRNA vaccines have actually, that technology has been around for a period of time. And I hear what you're saying about it being new, but let me tell you, <laughs> there are some cases where people get COVID or MISI and there is no long-term, like you don't even right. Right. die. And so, you know, right. Right. what we know is that in the short term, COVID and MISI are, are not um, safe. And so, Sometimes you have to weigh risks and benefits, and and in this case, um, you know, I think it is uh, very reasonable to consider that um, that we what we know is not good for children or COVID and MSC. Correct. Right. Um, you, what you mentioned that people were concerned maybe that it's been uh, rapidly developed, and there you know there has been a lot of uh, discussion about rapid development and changes, and as we've learned, because we're learning on the fly with COVID. I have to imagine that some of the breakthroughs in treatment, though, are positive. And if you could talk a little bit about, about that. Sure. Um, so I think, uh, are you, in terms of the um, vaccine... The new, well, the new treatments, the new treatments that are coming. Oh, for we, COVID? Right, right. Gotcha. Um, so... Yes, I think that uh, the treatments that are coming down the pipe are um, certainly going to help us with our arsenal because there's really not that much right now. We've we've tried a bunch of things and a bunch of things have turned out to be um, not optimal candidates uh, for therapeutics um, in terms of COVID. And I tell people routinely, you know what the best treatment is? It's like everything in pediatrics, prevention. <laughs> um, yes. So, yes. you know, if we really can kind of get back to that. But, um, you know, there, there are uh, some promising candidates coming down the pike. I think um, I always, you know, when I have the opportunity, I always mention with Ms. C, um, for example, we have studied a, per, a couple of particular immunomodulatory agents. Um, so medicines and therapies that adjust the immune system a bit, because in that um, disease state, basically our bodies have developed an inappropriate hyper-inflamed state um, where our bodies are just have gone wild. Our immune system has gone rogue. And so we have to like tame the immune system a bit. And so there are some therapies uh, that have been studied there, um, but to be honest, it's mostly supportive um, at this point, just like uh, the therapy of COVID uh, in children in particular, but really uh, in adults as well. So I'm sure that we will will learn more, but I think nothing um, will be as effective as prevention. Is the Pfizer antiviral drug that's supposed to come out next year, is that going to be available to children? I think just like with everything, it will sort right. of be released um, first in the adult world and then um, with studies uh, kind of back down um, the age group. But, you know, we are, you know, we don't expect any of this stuff to come out first for kids. Right. And I, and I right. um, totally understand and, and support that. Um, in September, uh, earlier this year, that it, there was a 
pretty scary surge in pediatric cases, and we had a lot of kids in the hospital. Where do we stand now in early December in terms of kids in the hospital? Yeah, um, we saw some ugly, ugly uh, numbers and situations um, late summer and uh, through the early fall in this state, um, really across the state. And um, then, not surprisingly, as COVID numbers sort of um, dipped down a little bit and, and folks across the state were saying, okay, or, you know, test positivity is coming down. We in the children's hospitals were like, hey, Miss C is everywhere, you know, about a month or two later. And this sort of sometimes gets left out of the conversation. So I appreciate you guys raising it because, um, you know, we are very uh, predictably, we'll see a pretty significant surge of Miss C about a month or two after our last COVID surge. And we've seen this you know, sort of pattern over the course of the last two years is like, okay, our COVID's dying down and our Missy is about to pick up and then we'll see another COVID surge. So right now we've just sort of are um, coming down off the tail of a Missy surge. Um, and we are starting to see uh, a slight uptick in our COVID numbers. Um, so, you know, uh, across the state and actually the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, and the Children's Hospital Association release a report weekly um, and it actually ranks the states um, in terms of uh, child COVID numbers and sort of overall wellness when it comes to, to children. And unfortunately, South Carolina has um, really been sort of uh, top five for a lot of these metrics and not in a good way um, yeah. over the course of the last uh, year and a half. I mean, for example, we are ranked third right now in the as of the most recent report at the end of uh, November in terms of the percent of cumulative uh, cases that were children. And so uh, just for example, 23% of our cases um, at this point over the course of the entire pandemic have been children, um, which is not a great metric. Wow, wow that's wow. higher than I would have guessed. Scary. That is scary. Yeah. Um, I'd love us to end on a, a upbeat note, and I know that you have um, volunteered around the globe using your profession to help people. Could you give us a glimpse into that and, and maybe how some of your time has impacted you professionally and personally? Sure. Um, so I am Lebanese um, and actually uh, right <laughs> in January of 2020, right as the beginning at the beginning of all of this, I actually um, took a pic, took a trip um, working with Doctors with, uh, Without Borders to my family's hometown. Um, they, they posted a need and said they needed a pediatric intensivist in this tiny town in Lebanon. And I thought, what are the odds? And so with very little notice, um, thankfully, my family and my uh, work were supportive um, of, of that. And honestly, that was a very special time. I got to see um, some family work in the pediatric ICUs with a number of Syrian refugees and that sort of thing, work with um, Lebanese colleagues who, who are trained in, in exactly my science and art. And so um, it was, it's one of the very fond memories I have of last year, just before the onset of all this craziness. And of course, I had no idea what was coming. Um, and prior to that, really, uh, a lot of my um, work has been um, in a hospital in Haiti where they have a pediatric ICU and um, in Port-au-Prince and uh, through um, Project MetaShare or Partners in Health, that um, whole operation, they 
are um, working actually to develop, they've, they've developed a pediatric residency, so a training program for their physicians and are actually working on developing a pediatric critical care fellowship. Um, and there are a number of pediatric uh, intensivists around the world who um, spend time there and are working on this project. So it's, it's really cool because we get to do, um, to work with them while we're there. But then we also uh, are all connected and we get to work with them when we're away as well on sort of this ongoing uh, longer term project. Um, and then also um, did a fair amount of work with Operation Smile before I really dug into the to the Haiti project. So it uh, really gives back to me um, and the, the people um, give back to me far more than I could um, give to them. But I, I decided um, about a decade ago that I, I thought it was more important to build a long-term relationship rather than um, a bunch of short-term uh, trips and that sort of thing. So um, I'm, I have been fulfilled by that and, and really been fortunate to have those opportunities. Yeah, what a yeah. blessing though to well, all those people that you help. You. Thank you for that good work. That is, that's awesome. And Dr. Elizabeth Mack, Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at MUSC, thank you for your long-term service, but thank you mostly uh, for today for sharing an insight into serving kids during COVID. We, um, I hope there's not another surge for your team, but if there is, we'll be praying that you have, um, you stay strong and courageous and continue to help those kiddos and stay safe yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew, that's um, sobering news. 7% of children 5 to 11 yeah. are only vaccinated. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. And, wow. you know, we're, we should be thankful. We have folks like Dr. Mack that are taking care of our kids. But we've got to look at those numbers and got to talk yeah. about vaccinations and the important, as she said, prevention. That's the, that's the strongest weapon we have to deal with COVID. Right. Well, hopefully, you know, I know I'm, I'm sure it's a very difficult thing to process as a parent making a decision like that. But, um, I, you know, I hope people get educated with good, edu with good information that's readily available and, um, you know, make some decisions to help us stop yeah. this because I think there is an up uptick happening, uh, yes. we, which we don't want. Well, for those of you who joined us today on Taking the Pulse, we hope you enjoyed this conversation, found some information that you uh, may find helpful in your journey forward. And we do hope that you'll check back in with us next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences podcast.